0: Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. I said last week we're coming to the end of this study through this epistle. Uh, Or at least I think I said we could see the end from here. And it seems that the more I study these last verses of chapter 5, the more I think, well, there's more there. Uh, And I promise you, even when we're finished today, even when we say, okay, we're done with 1 Peter, we're moving on, there will still be more to say. There would still be more that could be said. First Peter chapter five. Today we will read verses five through 11. Um, And so please follow along in your copy of God's word as I read aloud. First Peter five verses five through 11. You younger, likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud But gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be glory I'm sorry, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. God, we pray your blessing on your word. We pray that as we focus our hearts and minds attention, that you would open our eyes of faith, that you would even already have prepared our hearts to be good soil to receive the seed of the gospel. God, we pray that we would hear the voice of Christ in the preaching, that you would hide this preacher behind the cross of Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pick up in this text today in many ways, simply continuing where we left off last week. These final verses of this epistle uh, are familiar verses. We've heard these things before and, and often we have heard them and they can be taken as disconnected sort of Quippish statements. Often that's the way we are familiar with these verses. Cast your cares upon him. Satan is a roaring lion. Resist the devil to God be dominion forever. We we hear them in that way. And, and there's truth to be had. There is there's definitely benefit to be gained when we think of these phrases in that way, just individually lifted out of their context. But when we do that, we miss Peter's point. And more importantly, we miss the intended thrust of the text which God has intended, His intention, His point. So we want this morning to remember to consider the context. There is certainly in 1 Peter, in this epistle, an overarching context of Christian suffering for the cause of the kingdom. But the closer context in, in these verses is Christian submissive humility. Casting off sinful pride and being clothed in humility. So we want this morning to consider these verses in this context. So we pick back up in verse five, remembering where we've been, remembering that this text addresses those who are not church elders, those who are the sheep of the flock in a particular congregation and under the care of particular elders. The elders were addressed in the verses just preceding and now the non elders in verse five and following. And we also remember, as we looked at last week, the instruction here to put on humility or to clothe yourselves with humility. And the phrase giving us the idea of tying on a servant's apron. We said last week that Jesus Christ is our example in this. We use the instance when he tied a towel around his waist and washed the disciples' feet. And in that way, as well as many other ways, Jesus demonstrated and models for us humility. We also saw that we have these motivations here before us, motivations to humility, that God is opposed to the proud he resists the proud. He he sets himself in battle array against the proud. So we have this negative motivation. God opposes the proud. But then we have the positive motivation that God gives grace to the humble. That's about where we left off last time. So today we come to verse 6, which sort of summarizes this command to humility up to this point. Verse 6 Humble yourselves, therefore. And as I say that, I got to tell you, I have people say things to me and they get stuck in here and then I don't know what to do with it. Humble, humble. Either way you want to go with that. I'm just going to say it how it comes out. So there you go. Humble yourselves, therefore. Humble yourself. Now, this is a command. This is what we should be doing in light of all that we have seen in this text. In, in light of all that has been covered, really, in the whole epistle of First Peter, humble yourself. Now, the world, the world gives us a different command, doesn't it? Exalt yourself. Promote yourself. But Scripture tells us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You humble yourself. Our, our poets tell us that there's no greater love than loving yourself. There's nothing more than you can that, that you can do, nothing better that you can do than self-love. But scripture tells us don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Humble yourself. We have to decide at some point, right? Who are we going to listen to? Where's the truth? Humble yourself. Though the world's wisdom is look out for number one. Scripture tells us you think of others and their interests as more important than your own. You humble yourself. The verse continues, humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God I mentioned last week, this is the only time that we have this phrase in the New Testament, this mighty hand of God. And we see this kind of imagery throughout the Old Testament, but we have it here in the New. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this speaks to God's omnipotent power, his mighty hand, painting a picture of strength. And for us Christians, this is a comfort against any foe that would assail us. We don't serve a God made with human hands. He is not wood. He is not gold or silver. Our God made the world and all things in it. He is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over all. The mighty hand of God cannot be stayed. God's might and power... Here for us is another motivator that we should humble ourselves. We're not just putting ourselves under. Period. This is not put yourselves under, humble yourself, period. But humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So this is a motivation for us. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And at the end of verse 6, we have this effect of this humbling Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that that he may exalt you in due time or in the proper time. Now, there's another difference in what the world says and in what God says in biblical wisdom. The world says you exalt yourself and now is the proper time. Now is always the right time. Exalt yourself. But God says you humble yourself and God will do the exalting. And here, what is in mind in this exalting? Surely, there is an ultimate exalting referred to in this text. At, at Christ's return, everyone who is found in Him will be exalted. But praise God, there are there are certainly smaller, lesser exaltings which take place in the here and now. Aren't we glad that God does not just leave us to constant? uninterrupted suffering and oppression that God has graciously given us times that he lifts us out of the mire an opportunity to take a breath he exalts us a little and that, that small lesser exalting reminds us that there is a great day of exaltation coming Someone will say, when, when, when is the time? I'm ready for that now. Don't we all, we kind of feel that, right? But now is not the time. I know now is not the proper time because God has not done it. Christ has not returned. Now is not the time for that. The text tells us it's God's time. The proper timing is God's timing. It's certainly not our timing or else we would be exalted instantly. But God knows all things and he knows the proper time of exaltation. And God will not be early. Neither will he be late. He will be right on time. Verse seven is familiar to us. If we quote it, I gotta admit to you, if we quote it, maybe maybe even I would quote, cast your cares upon him. That's not what it says. I mean, look at, look at the verse seven. Cast your cares upon him as a command. But this this is given to us not as a command, but as a participle, as a description of how we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is how you do that. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is how you do it. Casting your cares upon him. Casting your cares upon him. Now, pride says you need to look out for yourself. You need to attend to your own anxieties You you need to attend to your own cares. But when we humble ourselves, we're no longer attending to our own cares. We're looking out for the cares of others. Wow, Here's the problem, Pastor. If I stop attending to my own cares, if I stop looking out for myself, then who is going to look out for me? Who is going to attend to all the anxieties and worries that I have? If I stop looking out for myself, then no one will look out for me. Well, that's worldly wisdom. We ask this way. Who's going to have my back? Someone may think, oh, well, I get it. I got it. It's community. If we're looking out for the cares of others then others will be looking out for the cares of others. It's community. That must be it. If we all look to the cares of one another, then we are cared for by the community. But that is not what the text says. Now, now certainly, certainly there is a truth here. God does use means to provide for his sheep, and he does use the efforts, the labors of one sheep to provide for another sheep. So there is a truth in that. But that is not where our hope lies. Our hope does not lie in community or in society. We are to humble ourselves, casting our cares on him. That's where our hope lies. We cast our cares on him. Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly all above all that we could ask or think. Casting our cares on him who is the one with a strong and mighty hand. Casting our cares on him Who saves us and keeps us, casting our cares on him, and in him our hope lies. In good times and in bad times, in sickness and suffering, as well as in health and peace, we entrust ourselves, we entrust our anxieties, our concerns to the care and the goodness of God. Humble yourselves, casting your cares on him. The text tells us because he cares for you. He cares for you. He he cares for you as no one else does. He cares for you as no one else can. Casting our cares upon him because he cares for you. Over and over again, Peter has instructed these Christians that he writes to. And I I believe that includes us in this day to entrust ourselves to God. Remember the passage of submit the submitting texts. We submit to governmental authorities. Wives submit to husbands, children submit to parents. We submit uh, slaves to masters, which includes our our, uh, employment relationships. And he says in that text, even if they are evil, even if they are unreasonable, even if they are hard, you submit because you're entrusting yourself to God. You're trusting yourself to him. Now, we need to be careful how we understand this. And we need to take... The, the instructions of scripture from all over and, and and rightly understand things we we have a saying <laughs> did you see how he's living as if he doesn't have a care in the world well that's not what's being mentioned here casting our cares upon him doesn't because I think when we say someone is living As though they have not a care in the world. I think that indicates a person who is not preparing for tomorrow. Someone who doesn't save for future needs. Someone who just squanders what they have. Scripture gives us this instruction. Go to the ant, thou slogan. Now there is a balance. We read earlier that we need to trust Christ. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added and we know that at the end of the day when we have uh, a roof over our heads and clothes on our back and food on our table we know that this is added to us from God's benevolent hand we know this but God has also given us the means by which he will provide and that is a man who doesn't work shouldn't eat so you should work. So, so we need to take these things and we need to understand them. And, and, and I have in my notes here that we need to go to the ant and learn how to store provisions today and gather food during harvest so that we will have something in winter. Proverbs teaches us this. I'd also like to add that a Christian should should not only store and gather enough that we can have something in winter, but also when it is winter that we would have enough to share with others who have needs. Christians, when we don't save for tomorrow, when we don't save enough to share with a brother and sister in need, we're violating the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. When we don't do that, we steal. We steal. We steal from our future selves. We steal from those who we should be able to share with. And we steal from those who now will have to help us because we have squandered what we have. So casting your cares upon him doesn't mean that we're irresponsible. He's given us those responsibilities to do. We understand at the end of the day that he blesses. One plants another waters, God gives the increase that's spoken of in the gospel. But that, that counts for our physical needs as well. We put forth the labor, the effort that he has called us to do, that he has commanded us to do. And in the end, he is the one who blesses. Casting our cares upon him. That's the way that I'm quoting it. That's what I memorized in the King James as a child. It, it might be better understood casting your anxieties upon him. Resting our worries upon Our our troubling concerns, resting those on Jesus Christ. Those things which we cannot control. Now, the things which God has given us something to do in, we are to do, but there are things that are out of our control. There are things that we cannot plan for those things over which we have no control. We lay those on Jesus. We cast those anxieties on him. So, Christian, you are to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting your cares upon him because he cares for you. In verse 8. Oh, verse 8. Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Okay, so this is a change of subject, right? We we were talking about submissive humility but now Peter mentions being of sober spirit. Is, is that a different topic? Have, has he just abruptly switched gears on us here? I'd I say no. <laughs> listen, listen to Romans chapter 12, verse three, and we'll get, uh, we'll get a broader biblical context for how these, these things are related. Uh, Romans 12, three, for through the grace given unto me, this is the apostle Paul speaking. He says, I say to everyone among you, Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. So here the Apostle Paul is addressing the same topic as Peter. In our text, he's addressing humility. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But now listen to how Paul contrasts the pride of thinking too highly of oneself. I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Don't think pridefully. Rather, in contrast, think soberly. Think so as to have sound judgment. So in Romans 12, 3, we see these two set opposed to one another and we uh, pride and thinking soberly. So here in our text in verse 8, we read, be of sober spirit. And this is not a change of subject. It's further instruction in humbling ourselves before God. Be a sober spirit, conduct yourself, that is tune your mind, will, and emotions to think clearly using biblical judgment. Now, now this thinking soberly would certainly not be hysterical, panicked. But on the other end of the spectrum, it would not be apathetic, it would not be careless. Think soberly, think rightly. I'm going to pause here. We we don't have time, but we're going to do it anyway. I I wanted to say this, and then I left it out of my notes completely. Jesus Christ is our example in humility. Would Jesus say, oh, no, I could never do that. It's omnipotent God. Jesus did not self-deprecate. He thought rightly. He humbled himself, even, even though he is God, of very God, he humbled himself to wash the disciples' feet. He humbled himself to, to, to take on flesh, to become one of us. He humbled himself in that way, but that does not mean that he just ran himself down. Oh, I'm no good. He thought rightly. Christians, we, I, I look out among you and I see I started to say, this is not in my notes. I try to write down and think through how I'm going to say things. I started to say, some of you have talents. Okay, okay, maybe all of you have talents and gifts. Some of your talents and gifts are very evident to me because I know either what you do for a living or what you do. I see your talents. I see your gifting. You are not to say, oh, well, I'm not. But to rightly know that whatever you have, whatever gifting, whatever ability, whatever you can do, it is only by God's grace. It is only by God's gift. To think rightly. Jesus thought rightly. This this thinking soberly is thinking rightly and thinking biblically. How do we view ourselves rightly as the scripture presents? And that is most of the time Very different from how the world views mankind and how the world tells us we should view ourselves. Think rightly. There's no place for pride, Christian. So, this is certainly not hysterical thinking, it's not apathetic or fearless thinking. There are two directives here be sober in verse 8 and be on the alert and these go hand in hand be sober and be on the alert someone who is on the alert watchful we might say is neither asleep nor are they panic stricken have you been with that person my wife just just stepped out she knew I was going to talk about her I'm not going to say much those of you who know her know that that, uh, when things happen she's not and I'm not talking about spiritually. I'm not talking about this application. I'm just talking about when we get into situations that she's panicked. She's not on the alert. <laughs> she's panic-stricken. And this is, this as we are to be in our spirits, we are to, not to be panic-stricken. We are not to be asleep and apathetic. Some of us are like that, right? Nothing. Nothing affects us. We're not to be that way either. We are to be um, circumspect we are to walk circumspectly now that's an old King James word I, I know that we don't use that all the time but think about the word spect meaning you know spectacles meaning to see to look to view and circum well that's you know we get circumference we get circled circumspect we are to walk in this world looking around looking around aware of the things around us now, we understand this idea of situational awareness. We think of self-defense. We think of being in a dangerous situation. Uh, we, we hear people talk about having your head on a swivel. And we know what that means, right? Be watchful so that you don't miss a threat and so that you don't have a blind area, a blind spot that you can be attacked in that blind spot. We know what that means. I, I thought about this and I, I thought about These verses, I remember one night walking through the woods with my son, Caleb, and we had been told that very day about a cougar, a mountain lion, who was loose in that area hunting. Whether it was was true or not, I do not know, but I know in my heart it was true, and in his his heart it was true, and you want to talk about some guys who had situational awareness. We were walking through the woods and our eyes were peeled. Our ears were open. Any, any noise, we were aware of everything. And we could not wait to get back inside the house so that we would be safe because we would be safe inside, inside the house. What what a scary night. But here's my question. As we think about this. Are we safe inside the house? Now, that mountain lion wasn't going to come in and get us inside the house, but are we really safe? We think about threats. We think about threats of violence. We think about attacks. We might even, as of the last few years, think about threats of illness and disease. But there are times that we think, "Well, well, this is a place of safety. And there's one threat that we ignore. We we just go bebopping through life as though we live in a safe place. We pretend this world is a playground. But the Bible tells us clearly this world is a battleground. There is no safe place in Christ. But in this world, there is no safe place. Verse 8 tells us we have an enemy and, and we learn something about this enemy. Your adversary, the devil, it says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This should scare us. This, this should. Oh, Christians, when we think about the devil, we tend toward one of two errors. We either think the devil does not exist. We live as though the devil does not exist or, or as though or as though the devil is everywhere. Either that he's not or that he's everywhere. That's, that's where we tend to go into these two errors. We either think the devil is of no concern. He's powerless. He's a joke. He's a man in, in red pajamas with a forked tail and a pitchfork. Or we think of the devil in another way. We think of Satan as being all-powerful and undefeatable. And, and Satan is satisfied when he can have us thinking in either one of those ways. Either way. If we think the devil is not real, if we think he is powerless, then we have no need to be sober and watchful. We have no need to look to Christ. Christ. Some of us live that way. And if we think that the devil is around every corner, then we may cease to to take responsibility for our own actions. Well, the problem is the devil. Not what I did or what I didn't do. I'm not the problem. The problem is the devil. Or, Or we start to focus our eyes on his great power. I didn't misspeak. The devil has great power, but either way, if we fall into one of these two errors, we are not looking to God for our protection and our care and sometimes bad things happen just because we live in a fallen, sinful world. The devil doesn't have to engage for bad things to take place. I've been asked many times, why don't we see more demonic activity in the United States of America? I think it's because he don't have to work that hard. He's got things going his way. But we need to know that Satan is active in the world and, and Christian. Satan wants you dead. Non-Christian, Satan's not your friend, he wants you dead. Satan wants you dead. The description here of Satan as a roaring lion hunting for prey to devour, this should startle us. This should wake up any sleepy Christian. This should sober the spirit of every believer. Christian, the first thing you need to know about Satan is that he is far more powerful than you are. He is far more powerful, far more cunning, far more hateful than you. He's more dangerous than you think he is. That's the first thing you need to know. And secondly, you need to know that Satan is a caged enemy. Satan is a caged enemy. Greater is he that is in you, Christian, than he who is in the world. God is not in a struggle with Satan over good or evil. We are not wondering who is going to win this battle. Satan is on a leash. Luther said, Satan is, the devil is God's devil. He's God's devil. And and The devil can do nothing. He cannot act at all outside the providential sovereignty of God. Satan can do nothing unless it is in God's decree. So Satan is more powerful than you. But with God, it's not even a contest. It's not even a contest. This reminds me of the the psalm that tells us God why. The heathens rage, the nations rage, and God laughs. Satan's more powerful than the men of the nations, but God still laughs. So so Christians, we need to think rightly about the devil. And and we need to see that there are many contexts in which we can take this verse, this, this picture of a hunting lion, and it could be useful to us in many contexts, but let's remember the context of this verse. Where is this verse found? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting your cares on him. Watch for the devil. He wants to devour you. Particularly in the area of pride, Satan wants you. Particularly in the battle to humble yourself, Satan is looking to destroy you. A friend of mine I heard him say this week, Pride is like bad breath. You're the only one who doesn't know you have got it. Anybody here who's like, well, I'm glad I don't have a problem with pride. I think there are two problems to deal with pride. There are those who have pride and there are those who are liars. We all deal with pride. We all struggle with this. Some more, some in different ways, certainly, but we all struggle with this. And Satan is looking, Christian, to destroy you in the area of pride. Christian, if this warning about Satan's attack is given in the context of a command to humble yourself, shouldn't we pay attention? This humility thing is more important than we thought at first. This is the very front on which Satan will come at you. So be sober, be watchful when it comes to killing pride, when it comes to humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. This week I heard a preacher talk about conferences that you can attend to learn how to defeat the devil. They're they're out there. I couldn't couldn't tell you one, I don't keep up with that. You'll see why in a minute. But there there are conferences you can attend, They'll, they'll talk to you about how to defeat the devil. He also spoke of books that you can buy. On spiritual warfare, listen, I've got some books on spiritual warfare that I would recommend. I'm not saying they're all bad, but I'm telling you this. Peter comes in as our hero here. and Peter's going to save us a lot of money. (laughs) We're not going to conferences. We're not buying books. Peter comes in here looking out for us and he says, and by the way, Peter's method, this is straight from the word of God. This is not some man's idea that we can say, well, it might work, it might not. But this is straight from the word of God. We can have confidence in this and it's going to cost you nothing. Verse nine. Resist it. Resist him. Now James gives us this same instruction when he wrote in his epistle. He wrote, resist the devil. So it's the same command, right? Resist him here in verse nine. Resist the devil. But James gives us a little more resist the devil. And you know what it says? He'll flee. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Christian, do you realize that we are nowhere commanded to fight Satan, to bind Satan, to cast Satan or any such thing? Now, we're familiar with this language because it's eat up Christendom. Go to scripture and find me a place where it says cast out. Now now wait a minute. Jesus commanded those apostles in that moment for that time, but what about us? We're not commanded to bind Satan, to cast Satan out or in or whatever. We're not commanded to fight Satan. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our champion. He fights for us. He is the one who has defeated Satan on Calvary's cross and he will fight our battles for us. Christians, we are commanded. Resist the devil. Resist him. Verse nine. Now, we dare not think this resisting is going to be easy peasy. This is real. This is standing when Satan wants you to lay down. We must stand, we must stand firm. And that's what the next phrase says. Resist him firm in your faith. Resist the devil firm in your faith. Now this is not resisting the devil in faith. Understand, I'm going to make a distinction here between faith and the faith. There's two things that we talk about. This is not resist the devil firm in faith. It's resist the devil firm in the faith. This is not speaking of some idea of inner strength as faith. And we, through that inner strength, we resist the devil. We are to resist the devil and stand firm in the faith. Those core teachings of the scripture concerning God's holiness, man's sinfulness, Christ's righteousness, and the gracious offer of salvation in the gospel. We are to resist the devil and stand firm, if I were to summarize it, stand firm in Jesus Christ and his life and his death and what he has accomplished stand firm in the faith this faith that we are to stand firm in I fear Christians that most of us never advance past a childish understanding of this so many in the church should be eating meat so many in the church should be to the level of teacher But we still have to be on milk. We still stand in need for someone to teach us. Christians, we need to take this seriously. We need to grow in the faith. Grow in knowledge and in understanding and in practical living in the faith. And we grow in the faith and then we stand firm in the faith, resisting the devil. We continue knowing that the same experience of suffering are to be accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Uh, I think I, I think I have misquoted that knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now by this he could mean a couple of things And I think there's benefit for us to consider both This could mean that as we suffer As we come under the attack Of the fiery darts of Satan Other Christians in other places And other times in the world They have suffered the same type of things So They endured what is necessary To purify them To grow them up in the faith Even so we too must endure Our portion Our portion Christian, you must endure your portion which God has allotted to you that you might be strengthened and established in the faith. Or, he could be referring to the fact that as we suffer, as we come under the attack of the fiery darts of Satan, that we are joined around the globe by brothers and sisters in Christ. And therefore, we do not despair as we suffer because we're in good company. Is it one or is it the other? Maybe it's both. Maybe it's some of both of these things. We are though encouraged by our brothers and sisters who are also standing firm in the faith. Our prayer this morning is that God would bless us in that way as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, patiently awaiting the proper time when he will exalt us Casting our cares on him. Knowing that he cares for us. May God help us to be sober. And watchful for our enemy. Who hunts. Looking for someone to devour. And may he help us to resist. Standing firm in the faith. Even as we are fortified. By our brethren in the world. Brothers and sisters. This suffering. This world. This is just. This is just for a moment. We endure knowing that there is joy before us in eternity. Next time we're going to pick up in verse 10. Speaking of the, the purpose, the end of our suffering. What, what is it that God has purposed this suffering to accomplish? For today, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you apply these things to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, strengthen us. That we might obey. That we might humble ourselves. That we might truly cast our cares on Christ. That we might be watchful. And aware of our enemy, but aware that as Satan prowls like a roaring lion, our Savior is the Lion of Judah. So we can trust ourselves to You, having no fear. God, apply these things to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.